0: A registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor Justin
1: Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, September 25th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein and I'm excited for this hour with you to help guide you through this these challenging times. We have energy prices reasserting our, themselves the upside as well as interest rates. And the market has been a bit volatile the last couple of months. If you understand seasonality that is to be expected. And this is a, this is a time where it's even more important to be focused on your long-term goals and your long-term strategy. I not get caught up in the minutiae of what's happened the last week or the last month. It's more about broader trends, medium to long-term trends. Even though short-term, there can be volatility. And so today is a day to refocus, refocus on the facts on the ground not the narratives that you see that try to get you to click on something on the internet whether that's social media or some other website it's not about the narratives that the media wants to spin you know they always spin something around the the markets you know markets were up because of x y and z oftentimes the markets are up for very different reasons than some headline number and so our goal here is to unpack the useful data and give you some unbiased perspective, developed with over 20 years of investment experience. So we're going to talk about the market ex- uh, performance. We're going to run down some show topics, and we are going to get to callers. And we're going to do that right now. Get to our first one at eight 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 ninety nine chart.
2: Hi, Stephen Justin. Um, my name is Bijan. I'm uh, listening for a few months. I had a quick question about JET ETF. Is it possible that airline ETF is going to see gains in the coming maybe a year? Yeah, looking forward to your answer. Thank you for your time.
1: All right, looking at JETS, and this is the U.S. Global JET ETF. And as you would imagine by the name, this is getting exposure to the airline industry. The top holdings are Southwest, Delta, United Airlines. Sun Country Airlines, SkyWest, Alaska Air, Hawaiian Airlines, Allegiant, and Air Canada. Those are the top 10 names and about 50 holdings overall, but 58% are in those top 10. So this is, or 58% of the assets, let's say, on the top 10. And this has rolled over pretty hard. It peaked around twenty-two fifty in mid-July. Now we are at $17.10 at the, cents at the close today, down 7 cents. And historically, airlines are not great businesses. They really aren't. Now, Southwest is probably the most consistent out of all of them. That's why it is the largest holding here in this particular ETF. But still, its return on equity is not that great. Remember, this is a highly capital-intensive business. Planes are worth millions and millions of dollars. And they tend to have a lot of them. So their fleet are worth billions. They have to pay gate fees to the airports. And it's cyclical business. Meaning some people travel more. Sometimes they travel less depending on their excess savings. And then you also have the whims of the energy market. Oil prices and those are going up, and that's why this has rolled over—is that leg higher in oil prices, and that's going to weigh on profitability. That's one of the largest, one of the largest inputs into their operation are energy prices, and then their workers—they're largely unionized. Think of the pilots' union, and we're having strikes with UAW. The Hollywood writers, et cetera, and just historically, this is not a great business once again, Southwest is one of the best ones, and historically its return on equity has been high single digits now it's at five point four percent It's just not a great business to be in, and the technicals are now very poor, so I'm passing on jets, I think there's much better opportunities out there in the marketplace. All right now, my focus point today looks in the story behind this headline. 10-year treasury yields hit, high, hit the highest level since 2007. This happened last week, and guess what? It happened again today. And we're going to touch on the economic data that may be driving that, as well as the broader broader implications of whether we might be near a peak in rates, at least near term. We also have some voice bank questions, one was regarding Nike and Roth IRAs. I want to touch a bit on oil prices and how, you know, we're approaching $100 a barrel again. But historically, it seems high. You know, it's a big round number and everyone kind of uses that as a proxy. But when you look into the context of inflation-adjusted prices as well as the energy intensiveness of our economy, especially when it comes to fossil fuels, it's not as jarring as it had been in the past. So we're going to look at some data there. Also, Western companies are now increasingly using the word de-risking from China as opposed to decoupling altogether. And we're going to talk about the strategies that they are taking to kind of wean themselves off of the supply chain being so dominant by dominated by China. Okay, And then lastly, we're going to touch on how entering the fourth quarter, there are growing headwinds to the economy. And how much can the consumer withstand? And we're going to touch on what those major headwinds are. Also, perspective today in regards to credit cards. When were they invented? What was the first modern credit card? And the perspective perspective is coming up near the halfway point of the show. Now, let's talk about the market as a whole today. It was a... Modest up day after a modest down day on Friday. You had the broad large caps up 0.4%, so 40 basis points. Small caps up 45 basis points, doing slightly better. And kind of a balance. Growth probably underperformed slightly, but nothing major on that front. You had the 10-year up about 10 basis points. That was really the big news overall up to 4.54% on the 10-year. The 30-year, that was up to 4.658%, up 14 basis points. So you're seeing those longer-duration assets selling off in a bigger way. And that usually feeds into equity multiples. So I wanted to, you know, the market is is still... digesting the hawkish rhetoric that's coming out of the fed but you also have some economic data the pce number and i believe what was the other one there's another major one i'll talk about later in the show that is going to feed into what happens with interest rates and the broader economy so that was the market today modest update overall all right we're going to a break let me remind you the new invest.classroom series and it's episode seven on cryptocurrency, and we do a deep dive on that. It's a complex subject, but we all know that some bad actors have hijacked the industry. And so where are the risks? Where are the opportunities? And we discuss that more in our invest.classroom series on our YouTube channel. So head over there and check it out. Now, my phone lines are open waiting for your questions at 888-99-CHART.
3: Justin Klein talks about the KPP Financial Premium Newsletter.
1: I want to remind you that this is a time where you probably need some guidance and you're tuning in to try to get our view of the markets. And we only have an hour here and, and sometimes the way I distill each day can be maybe not enough, maybe not enough time. And so our premium newsletter is a great tool for especially newer investors trying to learn some things.
3: The KPP Financial Premium Newsletter comes to your mailbox every Saturday.
1: Learn how to analyze the market, learn what the economic numbers mean, learn how to manage a portfolio, maybe get an idea of what are good companies to be at least looking at. Maybe you don't buy it today, but you should always have a watch list of companies that, hey, these are interesting, these have good businesses. And if they get the right price, maybe I should buy them. So our newsletter is a great tool for that.
3: Subscribe anytime at investtalk.com. Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy, discipline, and the right information. That means you'll have finance and investment questions. Justin Klein is ready to provide his unbiased answers, so don't forget to call InvestTalk,
1: 888-99-CHART. Now, my main focus point today looks in the story behind this headline. The 10-year treasury yield is at its highest level since 2007, and it was on the back of Moody's, the ratings agency, that said today that a government shutdown will be credit negative for the country as a whole. So obviously that uh, that adds to the level of worry within the bond market of how the U.S. government debt level as well as inflation and now credit – I guess just simply credit rating – uh, are becoming more and more questionable. You know, it used to be hey, we had a vibrant economy, inflation was relatively in check. You know, I'm thinking pre pandemic levels. And the US government, while not as great as it had been 30 years ago, is was still on solid footing. And that's starting to slip a bit. And so it's not one thing I think that is worrying the bond market. It's a confluence of factors. And then you add on top of that, the Fed saying we're going to likely remain higher for longer. Before the Fed meeting last week, there was an expectation of four rate cuts next year, and that has been downgraded to two. So, obviously, higher for longer means those longer-dated securities are going to sell off. Now, a government shutdown could happen basically by Sunday. That's October 1st. And little progress was made over the weekend. And that's the big issue. And what's interesting is that one side's not blaming the other at this point. The Republicans are blaming themselves. Right, Matt Gaetz is, came out and said, hey, this is the Republicans' part problem. We didn't pass the bill. And so what you're seeing is the extremes, there's extremes on both sides of the aisle. And both in many instances, depending on the topic, are willing to kind of hold the more centrist part of whatever wing they're working with. Kind of hostage. And that's what you're seeing now. And that makes getting things done a bit harder. And that's the political situation that we are dealing with today. Now, we also have some economic data coming in from the housing sector. We also have the Fed's favorite inflation gauge, which is the Personal Consumer Expenditure Price Index, the PCE. Index. So, what the core number will come in at will certainly be watched by the Fed. Remember, that's Friday. So, you may not get a whole lot of fireworks coming up for the rest of the week. Although, tomorrow, let's see, let's see what the calendar looks like for the rest of the week. Tomorrow, you do have that new home sales number. Single-family home sales, you have the Fed, Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index. That'll be interesting to see how that comes in. And then Wednesday, you have durable goods orders. So how willing are consumers to go out and spend on big-ticket items, things that last over a year, not just food and clothing, but you know, big-ticket items, new furniture, new appliances, new cars. And then Thursday, we have initial jobless claims once again. That'll be interesting as that hit a the lowest level since January last week. You have the real GDP number quarter over quarter. Now that's for the second quarter. It's kind of pointless because it's so backwards looking, but it will be talked about. Then we have pending home sales, so current existing homes. That'll be big as well. You have total vehicle sales coming out on Thursday. And then once again, Friday is that PCE number, and that will be watched as well as consumer sentiment. So big after last week was. Although we had the Fed meeting, was a light week for economic data? This will be a very, very busy week for economic data. We'll know a lot more about where the economy is headed going into the fourth quarter by the end of the month and end of the quarter and end of the uh, end of the week. So uh, very interesting to see how that plays out. Now, we're going to a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime. Leave your questions on the InvestDoc Voice Bank. Or if you're listening via the live stream or on AM 1220 radio in the Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888-99-CHART.
3: Justin Klein and Steve Beasley are ready to take on your finance and investment questions. Call Investor
1: 888-99-CHART. Go talk to Dan in Walnut Creek, he wants to talk about precious metals. Hi, Justin. How are you doing? Um, you want to talk about precious metals?
2: Yes, I do. Thanks. Um, so, I think you said on last week's show that silver um, had finished the day higher than gold, and that was a good thing for precious mm-hmm. metals. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's what you said. And I was wondering if this is a. Um, if i should still be hanging on to my um precious metal mining stocks
1: well the if you look at the gold prices and precious metal prices in general uh they peaked back in may and and that a lot of that had to do with the kind of higher for longer narrative started to pick up then and the dollar started to really reverse You know, uh, there was this belief that going into this year, due to the rapid rise in rates, that the economy would weaken so much that the Fed would start to embark on a cutting cycle. And obviously, that has been pushed off into next year for various reasons. A lot of it has to do with fiscal, uh, really, domination that's um, allowing us to have a huge deficit. Uh, But that's a lot of money going out there. Uh, Now, what's interesting here is you've got a lot of headwinds over the past four or five months now. Higher dollar, higher interest rates, and uh, typically would break gold to the downside in a big way. But we still remain kind of around that 1900 level on uh, on gold. Uh, And the silver to gold ratio, which is what I was speaking to, is typically silver will outperform in a time when uh, precious metals are are doing well. Uh, and so, because it's just simply a more volatile uh, metal. And so what you've seen over the past really year, it's kind of gone, that ratio has kind of gone sideways. It's not breaking down. It's not breaking out. It tried to break out uh, back in late August. That failed a bit. It tried to break down in mid-September. That also reversed. So we still remain kind of in this, uh, in this zone here. And which way that breaks, I think will be a big tell on which way uh, precious metals will break. But, you know we talk about the economy likely going into a recession sometime early next year and that will finally be the time i think where the expectation for the fed cutting will accelerate uh, and as opposed to right now it keeps kind of getting pushed off and once again the fact that it's not breaking down in that environment is a fairly bullish tell for me you know, it's it just remains from a from a pattern perspective in a consolidation range, and now that could change. You, you always have to watch that, but so far it's holding up fairly well, considering the hawkish narrative that kind of continues to slowly build. But we know once there's a clear break in the economy, that will shift, and I think that's when you're going to get that next leg higher in in, in metals. Uh, and I do think that happens probably by year end, but. Until then, until the, you get that clear narrative that the economy is breaking and, and interest rates are or that, uh, that unemployment rate is actually now in an uptrend as opposed to in a downtrend, that's when you'll see gold take off. So uh, we're still uh, holders of them. I think uh, you'll get another rally, like I said, into next year, uh, and I think next year will be a great year for that space. All right. Thanks for great. the call. Now, let's pivot over to Oil. And oil is approaching a hundred dollars a barrel again, and this rise in energy prices is certainly going to feed into a lot of parts of the economy. You know the cost of fertilizer, for example, goes up when natural gas prices go up. That hasn't really been happening in a big way, but once the food is grown, it needs to get to the store. And guess what? That takes trucks, and trucks use diesel. Then you have jet fuel demand. It is increasing, and that means higher prices for jet fuel, or sorry, for uh, airline tickets. And then you have the input costs to things like asphalt and plastics. Now, that will broadly feed into... Inflation. Now, the Fed typically excludes food and energy itself, but once again, those things feed in to other aspects of the economy. And now, investors and economists compare the current moment to previous periods, and it it said you know many times higher oil prices actually tip the economy into a recession. And it's not just about the exact price; it's the acceleration in price over a short period of time. Now, so far, gas is up 25% since the start of the year after being obviously down last year. And economists are fearing that this will push people to spend less on restaurants, travel, etc. And that's to be expected. That's, in a lot of ways, higher energy prices is deflationary in the medium term. Short term, it's inflationary. But medium term, it tends to be deflationary because of diverting dollars to the bare necessities, which is energy prices. Now, inflation-adjusted prices are similarly similarly higher than today's levels uh, back in 1979, 1981. And gas actually peaked the highest level in 2008. June 2008 at $5.71. $5.71, excuse me, per gallon. Now we're at three eighty-eight. dollars So oil's been much higher in the past. And so it's definitely a worry, but it's not to a level that is in and of itself going to push us into recession. But certainly with other things could get us there. All right, now in the invest- next, next invest talk, we're we'll looking at the story behind this question. Why do bond yields keep rising? That story tomorrow. But for now, I'm ready to take your calls at 888 chart At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI
3: You're building your financial future, but you must have finance and investment questions. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready to provide their unbiased answers. So don't forget to call Invest Talk 888 99 Chart. Hey,
2: Steve or Justin, this is Rohan from San Francisco. I had a quick question about the stock Nike NKE. I have been looking at this stock for quite some time. It's been on my watch list, and it's come to a point where I am looking to buy to start a position. Uh, I'm looking for a long-term, you know, three to five years' play. Uh, $90 is uh, around where I want to buy it. And so I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on on that stock and, you know, what are the near-term or Uh, long-term outlook for it, and then uh, what are the good entry points. Our opinion. thank
1: you have a good day Bye. all right I believe I had a call last week about Nike and I'll give you the same sentiments which is uh, you have a cFO this is one of the biggest red flags that I see in decisions to uh, who's who's becoming CEO or c o o and if you ever have a cFO elevate to the level of CEO or COO, I see that as a problem. I typically see that as a problem because they look at the they look at the company through the lens of simply the balance sheet, simply efficiency. And a lot of times that can be very good in the short term. But long term there's typically it typically means that they're taking their eye off of qualitative, qualitative uh, considerations. And everything is turned into quantitative. And we know there's a balance. There's a balance. For example, marketing. You invest in marketing, you don't know exactly what the, what the payoff will be, what the exact ROI is. Now, sometimes you do, especially with online marketing. But for example, big spending on uh, giant campaigns, Changing the look and feel of marketing, the direction of marketing in general. Doing things that make consumers wonder and get excited about a particular brand. Oftentimes, a CFO is going to quash that because it doesn't have clear clear numbers behind it. That play out in the near term. Often those are long-term payoffs. And so I think that's what's happening here at Nike. They're not innovating. You have the problems in China that are manifesting in lower sales and simply headwinds there. And the former CFO is now the COO. So my issue is, what is the catalyst that's going to drive this company back up? They made a bunch of money during the pandemics. People had money and they spent on physical goods. And people love Nikes. They love Air Force Ones and Jordans. Even the Blazers that were invented in, I believe, the 70s. Those are hot now. But what's the latest, what's the last Nike shoe that anyone can remember that was brand new and super exciting that everybody loved. I don't know. Our latest LeBrons, yeah, I play basketball. So I, I see all the, the new shoes that come out. I I wear the the LeBron 20s. So when I play and they're good shoes, they're very good shoes. They're probably one of the best shoes that they've made since some of the Kobe's, but it's not really moving the needle. And then you have competitors like On Running and Hoka. Those are two that are growing a lot better and taking some of the market share in the casual and the the, the running side of, of the business. So I just see there's a lot of headwinds here. Technicals are very poor. And it's still trading at a pretty elevated multiple. Talking about high 20s multiple for something whose earnings are negative 27% year over year last quarter revenues are only at 5%. I think it's at a lower 75 is my number. That's where it starts getting interesting. But until then I'm passing on Nike. All right, let's go to Brian in Charlotte and Charlotte. Wants to talk about MLPs. Uh, Justin. Yeah.
2: Okay, great. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I, uh, I have a question. I've, recently become in charge of my uh, elderly mother's portfolio. Mm-hmm. And it's a heavily uh, income-based portfolio. Mm-hmm. And my question was, what is your thoughts on uh, MLPs, the master uh, limited partnership, that side of income producing? And maybe if I can give you a particular stock, I'd really like your opinion on it.
1: Sure. Let's, let's hear that one stock and then I'll give you a broad overview of the space.
2: Great, thanks. That would be a uh, ticker symbol e- EPD, Enterprise mm-hmm. Product Partners.
1: Yeah, this is, uh, I believe, now one of the largest or the largest uh, e- Inter- MLP that's, that's still out there. Some of them have... There were some tax law changes a couple of years ago. I believe it was during the um, the Trump tax cuts that changed how MLPs were 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 taxed, and and some of them no longer became MLPs. And I, now I think EPD is still one of the largest, uh, and it's 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 solid. It's good. I have no problem with it in and of itself. Now let me ask you this: Are these typic Are these accounts that are they're tax deferred or are they taxable accounts? Meaning, are they IRAs or Roth IRAs or are these taxable are these, accounts?
2: Uh, This is in a rollover IRA. So I believe it's a tax deferred account.
1: Okay. So in an IRA, and if you earn over, I believe it's $1,000 in in income from limited partnerships in a particular year, you're going to get a K-1. So it's going to definitely complicate the tax situation uh, for you. I think you said it was your mother, right? Uh, Yeah.
2: She's uh, 80. So, you know.
1: So and she now she's probably, I'm guessing, in a low tax bracket, correct?
2: Well, she does generate quite a bit from her investments. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say low, but she's not obviously making tremendous amounts of money.
1: Yeah. So here's, here's the issue here is that uh, she's going to get a K-1. You have to fire, okay. file separate reports or separate tax returns for these. Uh, and that income is going to be taxed at her ordinary income tax rate. So it's not privileged in any way. Uh it's it's not it's not like your normal income that you're getting from your Procter and Gambles of the world, right? Your qualified dividends. Okay. These dividends are not qualified. Okay. So that's why we don't love them because of the tax complexity. And especially in an IRA, now you have taxable income, whereas before this is tax sheltered, right? She doesn't have to pay income if it was qualified. Right. So right. It's up to you whether you want to deal with the tax implications, but you just have to know about them and be aware of them and come to a decision. There, you get a nice seven point three percent yield, but once again, you have to pay taxes on that. If she's in a thirty percent tax bracket, that looks more like five percent, right? Right. Uh, which is nice, but you can get five percent elsewhere in, in qualified uh, companies, and, and you know, like we own some of the similar type of companies, the 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 ones that are engaged in the same activity gathering and processing of natural gas and oils and, and transporting them. And they pay lower dividends, but they're qualified dividends. So I would probably sell EPDs and, and the other MLPs in your portfolio and look for the, the ones that have qualified dividends, maybe not quite as high, but then you don't have to deal with the tax consequences of that, and it's all tax-deferred. It makes
2: sense. A tremendous sense. Thank you, by the way. Thank you for you and Steve for simplifying things. I've been listening for about six months, and y'all helped out a tremendous amount.
1: No problem, Brian. Thanks for calling, and uh, good luck with everything.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Our mm-hmm. right, now our perspective today looks into the history of credit cards, when they were invented, what was the most, what was the first modern credit card, and what is our reliance on reliance on them today? Now, for a lot of people, credit card usage is second nature. We've gotten used to them. They're all around us. And you may be wondering, when were credit cards invented? Now, let's go all the way back to the 1700s. And people were taking part in transactions that, were, that resembled credit cards. Now, back then, it was a credit transaction between merchants and farmers. There were several months between planting and harvesting crops, and farmers would often receive seeds from merchants by promising to pay the merchant back after harvesting the crops. So that was kind of the first, I guess you'd call it credit card, just credit between uh, two corporations. Now, the middle of the 20th century, the first bank card was not a credit card per se, but... It was an instrument of pre-arranged credit for customers of a certain New York bank called Charge It. That's what it was called back then. This was 1946. And people in the account at the bank could use the card at a few select merchants. And the merchants would send the receipt to the bank, and the bank would pay them for the items purchased. And later, the bill sent to consumers. So it was a credit card, but you could only use them at just a handful of places. And obviously, there was no credit card network. It was a relationship between the bank and the merchant in the 1950s history recorded the birth of the diners club card. Most people know that was the first modern day credit card and it was first used only in local restaurants and then expanded to additional retailers more broadly. Now the new charge card required customers to pay the balance in full at the end of every month. By 1951, the diners club boasted 42,000 members and expanded to all major U S cities. By 1953, it was accepted in Canada, Cuba, Mexico, and the United Kingdom. And then the concept evolved. Banks began issuing their own credit cards. And instead of requiring full payment at the end of the month, there was revolving credit. Now, American Express launched in 1958, and it made its name by transporting customers' valuables and offering traveler's checks. Now, the Bank America card, bank, not Bank of America, but Bank America card, was launched by Bank of America. It was the first consumer credit card, and that was in 1958. And it was the first to offer revolving credit. Now, 1966, MasterCard was a network of banks that accepted cards as payment from formed the Interbank Card Association. Originally named Master Charge, by the 1970s, it became the global alliance called MasterCard International. Discover was launched in 1986. It was initially launched by Sears, Robux, and Company. It had no annual fee and one of the first cash back rewards programs. Think about that. The cash back rewards program is is less than 40 years old. And in 2008, Discover actually acquired Diner's Club. Now, as of today, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Center for Microeconomic Data, issued its quarterly report on household debt and credit. We had a slight uptick in total household debt in the second quarter, increased by 16 billion to 17 trillion dollars. Credit card balances increased $45 billion to $986 billion. And We recently reached over $1 trillion at the end of the second quarter. Now, a lot of people will say, oh, we're at a $1 trillion. That's a problem. If you understand history, you know that higher credit card balances mean more consumer spending, means more at least near-term economic data or economic momentum. Now, aggregate limits on credit card accounts increased $9 billion, by $9 billion and now stands at $4.6 trillion. But delinquency rates remain roughly flat year over year. And so there's not a huge increase in delinquencies or any problem like that, mainly because people are employed. When you have a job, you tend to pay at least the minimum balance. Now the average interest rate for all credit cards accounts hit twenty point six eight percent in May, the highest on record. And no matter how you look at it, there's been a giant change in the credit card industry in just seventy years. Now, let's swing back to the Best Talk Voice Bank for a call that came in earlier at eight 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 ninety nine chart.
2: Hello, guys. I have a question. Um... For a Roth IRA, I know after
3: the five years of having the account open, you can go ahead and um, withdraw your actual investment. But I was wondering, if you have dividend stocks within that profile, when you receive those dividends after five years, can you also
2: withdraw those? Thank you.
1: No, the dividends are considered gains on the investment. All investments have two to return uh, components that you can have, capital gains or income of some sort. And so it's just considered part of that return profile. Just because it's income doesn't mean that uh, it changes anything. Remember, most of the returns that come from equities actually come from income, uh, from those dividends. So, yeah, don't think that that changes how much you can take out of your Roth IRA. All right, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal each and every weekday, and that's to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888-99-CHART.
3: Each day, Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments.
2: Hey, Dan from New York calling back from last week talking about GDX and GDXJ. But just curious your take on another ask regarding uranium, specifically the URA ETF. Uh, wondering if just, you know, secular tailwinds are making it a good buy at this time green energy and that kind of push or what your long-term outlook is there.
1: Uh, Appreciate all the help and advice over the years, but yeah, looking forward to the answer on the show. Thanks. Bye. Well, I've been talking about uranium for at least two years about how it's probably one of the best places to invest in the market simply because if you're pushing towards clean energy alternatives to fossil fuels Uranium is by far the best place to be. It's economical. It just takes a bit of investment in scaling the production of nuclear facilities and takes over, it takes the gut, the public to get over the, the fear mongering by a lot of environmental agencies throughout the years. And there's a lot of, plants that have been shut down throughout the world and with the higher cost of energy, well, fossil fuels, they've been reopening them and then China's opening dozens and dozens of them because they see the health havoc that their coal factories have put on their population or have inflicted on their population. And so the demand for uranium is only going to go up And I think it was the EU who recently classified nuclear as green. And if you actually understand the science, there's really no way to get to climate goals in a reasonable amount of time without drastically developing and investing in a nuclear fleet. It's not going to work if you're just putting up solar panels and wind farms and most hydroelectric dams have been put up in anywhere that they can be put up without creating major environmental damage. So nuclear is clearly the, the way to go and, and the trends within society are pushing that way. And post Fukushima, there was a lot of, there were a lot of, Plants or, or uh, mining facilities that were shut down. And so now you have a deficit. And your A and uranium is just taking off. It's finally breaking out. And I think there's a long way to go. Now it's a bit overbought right now. So you might get more of a pullback at some point and then by year end. But to me, that's a pullback to buy. So, yeah, as I've been saying for two plus years, uranium is a great place to be. All right, let's touch a bit lastly on. How Western com- companies are trying to de-risk from China, and they're they're not using the word decoupling anymore because it's not about getting out of China completely. But what a lot of companies are starting to do is make their China operation service China, meaning hey, we still we have we have Chinese production, and we have a lot of Chinese demand. Let's just have those operations fuel the demand within China, and. Longer term, companies are pushing to invest elsewhere. A report that by the European Chamber of Commerce said found that eleven percent of European businesses surveyed had already relocated investment out of China, while twenty-two percent had decided or were considering such a shift. And the first time since twenty sixteen, less than half of respondents planned to expand their operation within China this year. And here in America, the American Chamber of Commerce found that 12% of U.S. groups surveyed were considering relocating their sourcing outside of China with another 12% already doing so. Now, the issue is that a a lot of companies don't have alternatives to China, so it's going to take a while for companies to build out that production. But clearly, the plans are moving this way. And what a lot of companies are doing are what we call China plus one. They're keeping their China production but diversifying it out of the country additional investment that's why chinese economy is slowing so dramatically because the foreign direct investment is slowing to a trickle and their economy is reliant on investment both internally and externally so that's the trends you're seeing and that's uh, it's going to take a while but i don't think it's going anywhere all right, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. And we have now achieved more than 55.8 million downloads since it all began. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night.
0: Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program,